Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by Kirsten Hunter from Techstars to ask, do startups have an ageism problem? But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday the 28th of February. The Workplace Gender Equality Agency has released its annual report on gender pay gaps by industry, but this is the first time that the report has included the names of actual companies in its findings, and the naughty list is long. According to Startup Daily, the WGA found that the gender pay gap in IT, science, and tech is at 22% far higher than the national average across all industries. This fits with data from the rest of the report, which shows the disparity is largest in industries that are largely male-dominated. 62% of median employer gender pay gaps are over 5% in favor of men. The WGA publishes its findings so that the public can make informed commercial decisions based on the approach of companies to gender equality. The hope is also that companies and industries that have been outed by this report will make changes in their hiring, promotion, and salary decisions to help make their workplaces more equitable. And I'm sure they are hard at work on how to address it right now. And of course, by address it, I mean spin better stories without actually changing anything spare a thought for the marketing peeps. On the subject of spin and naughty lists, earlier this month, energy company Shell created a climate tech startup called Onward. Yes, you heard that correctly. According to The Guardian, the startup's website promises to connect thousands of innovators across the globe to tackle difficult energy and climate challenges. The catch? Despite all the wonderfully green language, only one of Onward's five projects with available hiring descriptions is not explicitly for oil and gas production. Many critics have accused Shell, as well as other fossil fuel companies with climate tech interests, of greenwashing, or presenting a public face of environmental concern while behaving in a different manner behind the scenes. So, is this new initiative really about helping the planet, or is it about helping an image? And just a note to our editors, please remove the sound of me banging my head against the desk. Don't delete it, though. I'm going to make it my ringtone. In other news, a startup that once held a coveted unicorn valuation of $11.7 billion in the pandemic has gone into liquidation in the UK in order to shift its operations to America. Is that how this works? The Australian Financial Review reports that video calling software Hopin, which I was very disappointed to discover wasn't an online meeting app for rabbits, is being restructured to focus on its remaining services after selling the majority of its assets to video calling company Ring Central for US $50 million. The startup's founder, Sydney-born Johnny Bufferhat, left the company after the sale but remained on the board. Buffer had realized about $250 million from selling shares in funding rounds for the company. At one point during Hopin's success, Buffer had commented, valuations are just numbers, right? I mean, for some reason we're talking about dating apps for two episodes in a row, and that's because the market seems to have fallen out of love with the successful dating app Bumble, as the company announces that it will be cutting 30% of its workforce which is about 350 employees. According to TechCrunch, the company posted Q4 2023 results this week, showing a 32 million net loss, which led to a drop of 10% in Bumble's stock price in after-hours trading. 
CEO Lydian Jones stated that the job cuts are part of an app overhaul that is aimed at increasing growth. Bumble's troubles are indicative of issues facing the entire dating app sector, with apps across the board seeing declining revenue as users are becoming less likely to pay for premium add-ons. Jones has also attributed Bumble's difficulty to the introduction of features in the last 18 months that haven't resonated with its user base. What a buzzkill. I'm so sorry, I really had to go there. And finally, speaking of buzzkills, in startup funding news this week, white guys gave more money to white guys and were just exhausted. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. recorded our discussion with Kristen Hunter, who, by the way, is our first return guest on the Bootstrap, prior to the gender pay gap report release, but the discussion couldn't be more timely. One element of the WGEA report showed that the pay gap for women increases by age range. While you might look at that stat and say it shows the gap is closing generationally, it's a stark reminder of the additional barriers that older women face in the workforce. Kristen Hunter is the Managing Director of New South Wales at Techstars, a longtime mentor for Blackbird Giants and Startmate, and one of the creators of Grapevine, the platform created earlier this year that empowers individuals in Australia's tech scene by spotlighting personal stories and insights. Well, Kristen, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thanks for having me. Actually, I should say welcome back. You're our very first return guest. Oh, what a privilege. I know. Yeah. Well, you've obviously got a voice that is one that has got a lot to, to share in some of the topics that we are covering. And so we're delighted to talk to you today. And we're going to cover a couple things here around ageism and also the work that you're doing with Grapevine. Well, let's start with ageism. Is there an ageism problem in the startup ecosystem, broadly speaking? I assume we have an ageism problem in the startup ecosystem because I definitely think we have a homogeneity problem. And what I mean by that is we do have a tendency to skew towards younger people, towards whiter people, towards more male people. And whenever there's a disparity between the population in a certain little group and the broader population, I think that you have to be very creative to imagine that that's due to anything other than some layer of bias and discrimination. Like all forms of discrimination, there's degrees of how sort of direct versus how indirect it is. But certainly I think when we when we imagine a founder in particular, we imagine Mark Zuckerberg building in his parents' garage. You know, we, we imagine someone who's young, probably been to college, maybe they didn't necessarily finish it, probably have a degree of privilege to be able to afford their own computer and laptop and take time out of paid jobs, all that kind of thing. And that does tend to lead to a bias in selection when things like allocation of capital start to come into play. So when we think particularly about the like older founders, where most commonly do we see that? I, like, I understand you, what you're saying and that it's a symptom of this wider homogeny issue. For older founders, where do you think we see that the most or where they experience it the most? Yeah, so that is a great question. And I mean, I, 
I am in the category of older as far as things go, but I'm no longer a founder. So I can't speak to that with personal experience, but maybe some data might help kind of illustrate the scale of this problem a little bit. So looking at the research report that came out late last year, the Startup Muster, which actually we spoke about last time I was on the podcast, (laughs) that actually showed quite a large shift in the age demographics within the founder population. So the average age of a founder in Australia in that survey was 46 up from 41. There was an increase in representation in every decade from 40s, 50s, 60s, and a decrease in representation from founders in their 20s and 30s. So very, very interesting population shift. It is quite consistent with what we see overseas where the average age of a founder is in their 40s, varying between 41 and 45, depending on the stage of company. Interestingly, uh, I did see some data that showed that the founders of successful high-tech companies were at sort of more towards that 45 bracket. However, we don't collect data on founder age when it comes to who's getting investment in Australia. You know, I'm a pretty proficient Googler and I had a good look and I couldn't find anything before this podcast. And I will sort of say just more broadly, we do have a pretty nascent level of transparency into who's actually getting funding in Australia. There's been some progress around gender that's been really driven by the work that uh, particularly Scale Investors and Alberts have been leading through the Equity Clear initiative, but that's where it stops for us. We don't collect data, or at least if we do collect it, we don't make it available outside the particular investor around the age of founders, around the gender identification of founders, around racial and cultural background, migrant status, sexuality, ability, all of these ways in which discrimination can creep in and impact those decisions, we are not collecting the data on. And so without that data, it's very difficult to speak to where this discrimination is happening and what that experience looks like outside of anecdotal stories. And unfortunately, as much as we'd love it to be true, the plural of anecdote is not data, but it is a massive, massive (laughs) gap in our ecosystem that we don't collect and don't report on this information. I I think as a smaller country... We are actually behind in data collection in a lot of areas, you know, not just equity funding. I come from an education and a journalism background, and there are areas where you can really lay your hand on great stats in the UK, in the EU, kind of the US, where maybe it's just because of the size of the country that we haven't spent as much time building that infrastructure. But Certainly in the the VC space, that level of transparency, what are the biggest barriers to that, do you think? It's a really good question. I mean, I, as an investor through my role as managing director at Techstars, I'm very conscious of these things. And so I do collect this data internally with me and my team. We don't report externally around the granularity around the sort of founder dynamics. I did uh, publish the specifically gender diversity results for our last cohort last year, but it is it is quite challenging in a multinational company like ours because there are different laws around disclosure in different jurisdictions. And so that certainly poses a challenge to any investor who's operating across borders. I mean, Closer to home, most of our investors are sort of focused on Australia and New Zealand, so they're not sort of having to navigate very restrictive laws around what they can and can't ask founders, data collection laws, that kind of thing. And, I mean, it's an interesting question, I think, that we have to ask ourselves for an industry that believes itself to be data-driven, making 
data-informed decisions. There's literally books that have come out of the tech ecosystem around the lines of measure what matters. If you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. And so it's hard not to read the fact that we don't measure the numbers around anything beyond gender when it comes to who's getting investment capital as the ecosystem saying to founders and the broader population that it doesn't matter. And I don't think that's true. I think it matters a great deal, particularly when you consider that there is quite a bit of data that says that older founders do actually have a greater likelihood of success when it comes to building businesses. And again, there's sort of not so much data that's specific to Australia, but there was an article from Forbes a couple of years ago that was reporting on a study that was pulled together by uh, a bunch of universities in the US that showed that the likelihood of success of a founder increases with age until they hit 60. So the older you get, the more likely you are to be able to build a successful business. And oh my there's God, an interesting there's still time. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to read it so I don't <laughs> get it wrong. But a 50-year-old founder is twice as likely to build a thriving enterprise that has either an IPO or a successful acquisition as a 30-year-old founder. And again, like I ask this question a lot when it comes to advocating around gender diversity in investment. When the data tells you that founders that come from a particular demographic or experience are more likely to perform better, your fiduciary obligation as an investor should skew you to be investing in that direction. And the fact that it's not doing that tells all of us that there is bias at play here particularly when you consider that the ecosystem does pride itself on being data-driven. One of the arguments that will come up against quotas or measuring is the exact same argument you just made, is that VCs are responsible to people that have the money to get the best return. Exactly what you have just pointed out is that the real fallacy in that argument is that if that were the case, then the investment profiles would match what we know about success. I wonder if one reason why we don't have that clear data is you won't find many people that will say not, I don't think diversity should be a thing, even if they really believe it, but is that we don't necessarily know what to do with that. Like what is getting it right look like? Because the, you know, the flip side, I saw a LinkedIn post a couple of days ago from you know, a female founder disappointed about missing out on on something and, you know, basically saying, should there be quotas of, of you know, 50% female founders and things, et cetera. And like, is that the answer? Look, I would hesitate to go so far as like a quota at 50%, but I do think we should insist on the data around diversity in investment decisions being made available and not just once a year or, you know, at a frequency determined by the VC when it's had a run of diverse investments and has a good story to tell. Like I think it should be publicly available and tracked so that founders who do meet different diversity categories or who who aren't, you know, younger, whiter, maler founders will know which are the venture investors who are more likely to see beyond the fact that they don't fit this archetype of what a successful founder looks like for that investor and be able to see the talent and grit and potential in that in that business. And for me, that's so much of what it comes down to is investors who do allow their bias to creep into their decisions 
not able to see the potential in the businesses that they're passing on, which is, again, it's a real worry, I think, for their ability to really discharge their fiduciary obligations. And if I was a limited partner in one of these VC funds and the VC fund was, you know, year on year showing me investment decisions that showed younger, whiter, maler founders, I'd be asking questions around, are you really investing my money in a way that's likely to drive greater returns? If you are ignoring these demographics that are shown time and time again to be more likely to be correlated with stronger business performance and greater returns on invested capital. So it's definitely something to think about, but it does require a little bit of mental gymnastics on the part of investors to to invest in that way. Because if you sort of think about it, what the data is telling you is kind of this logical process. Whereas what your gut is telling you about is this person likely to be successful is a very kind of instinctive, emotional driven process, which of course, I'm not the expert on this, but there's plenty of people who've written much more eloquently than me around how flawed those gut driven processes can be when it comes to this type of decision-making. But for the individual investor who's making the call, what it means is you have to go against your instinct of who you think is most likely to be successful as a founder and invest in line with what the numbers are telling you, but your gut's not telling you. And so it is worth kind of appreciating that that challenge that investors have to overcome. It's not impossible. I mean, all of us have to do this multiple times every day in our daily lives. So there's no reason why an investment decision should be any different. But I think it is something that requires a level of you know, self-reflection, self-awareness to be able to understand those kind of like emotive pulls that you might have towards a particular style or archetype of founder and overcome that kind of instinctive response and invest instead in a line that's sort of more in line with the data. Coming from the US where affirmative action just been repealed with things like university selection super problematic in a lot of ways because like how do you measure that and this kind of perception of oh that means that other people are missing out but for me at least as a white you know cisgendered straight male i i think that unless you can come to terms with your privilege you cannot understand it and that's a you know that's a triggering word for some people right away um, so I'll just say woke as well so they can really freak out, right? But how, how do we address that and, and understand that as a part of, of bias? I think it's a lifelong journey and it's something that starts with that recognition and, you know, like really sitting in a place of vulnerability to accept that you do hold a degree of privilege. And that does not mean that everything in your life has been easy. It does not mean that you don't hold other areas or other sort of traits that you experience oppression in. But for example, for me, so, you know, I'm a white woman, I have a high earning potential, I come from a lower socioeconomic background, but that's not where I exist in society today. I'm straight, I'm cisgendered. And so there are areas where I am in a privileged position, but then there are areas such as gender where I do tend to fall outside of the the, the privileged status. But as, you know, as a very privileged white woman, the fact that I experience oppression as a woman makes me more aware of the ways in which I can oppress other people by virtue of being white, being higher socioeconomic status, being cisgendered, being straight. And I think that is a very challenging thing for anyone to start down that journey because 
in going down that self-development pathway yourself, you realize all of the ways in which you have not lived up to your own values and all of the ways in which you've allowed your privilege to step on other people. And that is a very, very confronting thing to realize about yourself. But I also think it's incredibly important because no one... I mean, I hope anyway, no one wants to believe that that they are better than anyone else just by virtue of who they are and what they look like. And so I think if you really push people, we all want to live in an environment where we're valued for our capability and our skills rather than how we were born. When we think about the, the stats around female founders, around older founders, part of what when you, I, I had a conversation about talent acquisition for startups for this show yesterday. But, you know, I asked a question around that and one of the comments was it, it is challenging to appoint 50% female when maybe five out of 25 applicants are female. But I think we also need to understand that those five female applicants applying for that senior role or those five out of 25 female founders that are applying for that pitch night are, have already overcome a degree of adversity and challenge to get to the point that they are as opposed to their you know white male counterparts and i'm just not sure how we equitably take that into account in the way that we make decisions yeah i think that is an incredibly deep question and like i said i i do appreciate that it does require some mental gymnastics to to look beyond what your instinct is telling you about the person who's sitting in front of you whether that be positive or negative you know like the the instinct can tell you that this young male founder with a pitch deck talking about how he's going to put a dent in the universe that this is someone who's worth backing that is as much an instinct that should be questioned as the instinct that says this older female founder of color is not someone who I think is likely to succeed. You know, why is it that that's your reaction and look beyond that sort of most baseline level response that you have in your body to someone who looks different to you and interrogate that further using your brain and mental capacity? I mean, it should be something that we're capable of (laughs) that often doesn't seem to happen based on the outcomes of these investment decisions. I mean, I will just sort of say as well, like something that I think about a lot, I suppose, is this myth that we all have that if you just want it badly enough, if you just work hard enough, if you're just willing to sacrifice enough, then success will come. And again, this is, I'm not the first person to raise this idea, but the, the flip side of that is if you are not successful, then it must be something that you as a person have done. Your lack of success is due to your failure as an individual. And again, I think that's something that for me, I reflect on a lot because one, it's just not true from what I've seen. My family, I was a kid in the 90s and my parents both lost their jobs and we really, really struggled through that 90s recession that we had to have. I remember as a kid, one of my kind of core memories was all of us as a family sitting around and my parents took a job to deliver junk mail to help be able to feed their three kids. And all of us, you know, I would have been probably nine or 10, the age my daughter is now and my brother and sister younger, but all of us sitting around the living room folding junk mail and preparing junk mail for delivery. And my first job that I got paid for was helping my parents deliver junk mail on the weekend. And if you're interested, I got two cents for every every piece of junk mail that I delivered into a mailbox. And I thought that this was the most lucrative thing in the world. But as I've gotten older, thinking back on that, you know, that was hard work. It was backbreaking work and exhausting for a young family to to do that. But 
the the reward was not commensurate with the work that it took to do it. And so, no. you know, in many ways, I'm lucky that I, I got that idea of work hard, be rewarded was proven wrong to me at such an early age, because it's been something that as I've gone through my career, I'm less concerned, I suppose, about the rewards that come from the work that I'm doing and more concerned about what's actually going to reward me as a human. What am I going to find interesting and satisfying? And that's allowed me to make career decisions based more around the quality of work that I get to do and the way that it inspires me than the rewards that I get from a particular job. And over the long term of my career, that's those two have ended up paying off. You know, like I have ended up in a very, very privileged position. I get to manage investments on behalf of one of the world's leading accelerators, which, you know, is just an incredible opportunity. But I've gotten here by making choices that have been driven more by what I've enjoyed doing rather than what's going to pay me well. Mm. Which is such a privilege, isn't it? Absolutely. It is such a privilege. And first off, I did the letterbox drop job as a student and did that you? was hell. And I can, well, actually my wife and I did because we were, we got married and then we were at uni and there is no marriage. Well, I don't know. This is a long time ago, but we were, had Oz study, which is amazing, but there was no married rate of Oz study. So we were mm. actually getting less than we would have been if we were on what, you know, the dole. And so we, we thankfully got some jobs in like an after school care, but we did that like for months and oh my gosh, I can't imagine doing that with a young family because as I said, the, the time involved and the effort involved in doing it properly and not just, you know, kind of dumping it somewhere. <laughs> tempting. I, I guess there's another question around this too. When we think about founders with that profile that we know is less investor friendly or less likely to get investment. I'm a bootstrapping advocate. And so I do think that there is a piece of trying to help people understand the game they're playing and where they're most likely to be successful. And so that comes into another question around how do we educate people about the fact that there are some ideas and business models that are not VC backable, that are, that are going to have to be built by revenue or by other investment funds. And because that is something else that I think can skew this is that there are some people where they might say, oh, I'm not getting the buy-in because of my age. And we have clients who are in 60s and even 70s and have been through accelerator programs and have given that feedback that, you know, I felt like I didn't really get the time of the day because the moment the camera turned on and they saw me, they were like, oh, no. And that's probably true. But there also are just some ideas that aren't backable in that sense. How do we educate people around in that space? I think a big part of it is the stories that we tell as a society around what success looks like and who we hold up as the people who, you know, are the role models that we look up to. And I do think this conversation is happening more and more. And I mean, the fact that your podcast exists and the the work that you do around Bootstrap Founders is a big part of that as well. But I think we're in a really interesting moment where, you know, obviously the last couple of years have been real boom time for VC investment leading up to 2021, where things were, you know, really just on a different level to what they'd ever been previously in Australia and what they have been since then. In the last two years in, in venture investing, the numbers have gone from the peak at 2020 
2021, lower in 2022, and then lower again in 2023. But actually, this was pointed out on the panel for the State of Australian Funding Report that cut-through ventures and folklore ventures produced that came out a couple of weeks ago, where actually, if you draw a line and you just skip out 2021 and 2022, we're kind of on track from where we should have been. But because of that heyday where capital was cheap and everyone was investing in venture, the stories around these, you know, $100 million fundraisers being things that got so much attention and rightly so, you know, that's an exceptional outcome for a company, but it's not the only measure of success. And again, I think this is something where being a pre-seed investor and investing at the very, very early stage, like I do through Techstars and particularly in a cohort model. So I have 12 companies come through the accelerator and in no world am I trying to invest in 12 unicorns, but I do like to think that maybe there's one unicorn that comes out of the kind of couple of years worth of programs that I run, but I would love to see, you know, $100 million business is equally something to celebrate. A $20 million business is incredible. Even if it's a business that goes on and employs the founder so that they can live doing the work that they love, maybe a couple of other people as well, like that is still a huge win for that founder, for the people who they serve, for the people who work for them and society more broadly. And I don't think we celebrate those small wins enough because we're so focused on how do we maximise the likelihood that we get another Canva. I mean, we may never get another Canva in Australia, but that doesn't mean that the tech ecosystem is a failure and it doesn't mean that there isn't a heap of value that's being created in other ways. I do think that there is an onus on VCs to have more frank and honest discussions with people about their prospects than they do. Mm-hmm. I, I understand the model is that you've got to kiss a lot of frogs, right? But you don't, you don't tell the frogs that they're frogs. And on one level, we don't want to discourage people. But when that kind of typical response of, hey, that sounds really in- interesting. If it gets some traction, I'd love to chat to you. To me is really irresponsible slash predatory. Because what that says to the founder who may just really need a dose of reality that they're not on a winner. I work with people who have taken that away and put in way too much of their own money because of the stock that they put in that only to discover that they don't actually have a viable commercial idea. So I I do think that there is onus on VCs in terms of bringing just the honesty and reality into the conversation. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> what am I going to do about it? Oh. <laughs> I mean, we do we do train our founders uh, as part of the TechStars Accelerator around those capital raising conversations, and we are quite direct that when you get that kind of not now, but maybe in the future, that that is actually that's a no. You know, it's a no, and yep. that's a no that is being made off probably maximum ten minutes focus consideration that that venture investor has given to your company. I think that's versus, generous, but okay, exactly. Versus you know months, years that you have spent on it, and so if a if an investor says to you, "Come back to me when you've hit this metric or got this degree of traction or released this product feature." It's not a well thought out position and it's not something that you should change your whole strategy in order to deliver on because chances are you would go back when you were at that level of traction and they would say, not for me. Originally, they might say, come back when you're at $20,000 monthly recurring revenue. You go back at 20,000. They say, actually, now it needs to be 50. It's a no that's dressed up in a way that's trying to protect your feelings or 
you know, maybe if I think about it with more of a positive intent, it's a no that's dressed up to keep the door open for them in future. If you do look like you're going to become wildly successful, but in that moment, it's better to take it as a no rather than an invitation for a future conversation. And I do, I agree that not all businesses are venture investable. And again, I think there's a lot that we can do to celebrate the stories of founders and success that doesn't fit that traditional venture model that will help people realize that there are these alternative pathways. It's not just the job of the venture investors to educate the community. I think we we as ecosystem leaders have a big responsibility there as well. And, and I understand why investors aren't always comfortable giving a direct no, particularly in an industry that's highly competitive and they make their name by being founder friendly, there's no incentive for them to get a reputation as being the person who tells you the news that you don't want to hear. So I think, you know, it it is a sort of a messy, complex question, but it's something that all of us have a responsibility to talk about. Yeah. The the onus is not just on VCs. I think it's just that for the health of the ecosystem, it's not about killing people's dreams. It's about really, if we care about people's financial well-being, then giving them false hope that you think about like a bootstrapping founder, you've got to have some resources to even be able to start. And so sometimes I feel like bootstrapping founders, they may have just enough resources to be a real danger to themselves right? Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. where they can kind of go and splash out money on a build that they is not well thought out at all. And then they build something with the build it and they'll come mentality and no one comes. And then it's just desperation stakes. Right. And so mm-hmm. that I feel like if we're, if we are stringing people along in that sense, and it's not necessarily the VC's job to do that education, but to partner with people who do. Mm. And also I think societally, as you said, re- rethinking what success means, because right now, and one of the reasons why we're producing this is because startup news right now is all about capital raises. It's all about who got who raised what. If you hear about them again, it's usually, you know, because they've raised more money or they failed spectacularly, but kind of nothing mm-hmm. in the middle. And as you said, those businesses that truck along that are doing 20, 50, 100 million dollars a year as family-owned or bootstrap businesses, we should absolutely be celebrating. Mm. So some of that is about, I guess, people's ideas of that. I do want to bring the grapevine into the conversation because obviously we've had a bit of a wide-ranging here, but you know, all kind of on the on a similar thread. We haven't gone down a, a huge rabbit hole. Tell us a bit about the grapevine and what it is for people that don't know, first off. So grapevine is um, basically a content and story sharing platform. So we launched late last year in mid-December off the back of a number of different incidents within the tech ecosystem that really shone a light on the degree of bullying and harassment that exists both at a public level towards women investors and women founders and operators, but also sort of behind closed doors within companies themselves. And so Grapevine was born out of a small number of us coming together and realizing our shared experience of this behavior. And rather than what we've previously done until now, which is go for a drink and 
drown our sorrows and talk about how bad this behavior is and how it shouldn't happen. Instead, we asked ourselves, well, what can we do about this to try and fix it? And part of the the thinking that's led to the grapevine as well is sort of recognizing that particularly within the tech ecosystem, there are a number of structural factors that make tech particularly vulnerable to bullying and harassment. It's a small ecosystem, highly networked. So it's a lot more about who you know, and that has real, real positives. It's a beautiful thing about the Australian tech ecosystem, but actually it carries a huge amount of risk. If you're someone who speaks out about bad behavior, you can effectively be blacklisted from future opportunities. And so that creates a level of fear and disparagement against people who might otherwise speak out. Startup cultures typically value informality and they define themselves as not being bureaucratic, not being process-led like the big businesses that, um, that they might have come from. They're small and lean operations, so they would typically direct their resourcing towards tech and product rather than people and culture and HR. We've already spoken about there's a profound gender inequality, particularly at leadership roles, particularly in startups where funding is granted and where funding, VC funding is granted. Those founders who receive that funding are in a real protected position because they're the the ones with the genius idea that's going to you know, build this unicorn business that's going to return the whole capital of the fund. So there's two two components to that. One is if that founder themselves is responsible for negative behaviours, it would be a, a very brave member of the team or a very brave investor that would speak up against that founder. But also I think even if it's not the founder themselves, if it's behaviour that that founder is seeing within their broader team, the incentive for that founder to go through the leadership journey to to be able to handle that issue within their team. And it is very difficult. It's just not there because the founder is in such a protected position. So it actually sort of discourages the whole organization from gaining that maturity and responsibility to be able to handle these difficult topics. And then lastly, startup boards often are composed of the founders themselves and investors. And both of those groups typically would be kind of orienting their decisions towards maximizing that sort of long-term success rather than dealing with the sort of you know, the the shorter term issues that might be perceived as slowing things down. And so all of those factors make tech really vulnerable to issues of bullying and harassment. The result of that is an incredible loss of talent, particularly given the success of some really amazing programs like Startmates Women's Fellowship, just to name one example, that have led to much greater numbers of women leaving corporate roles and coming and working in the startup ecosystem. Unfortunately, the experience of a lot of those women has been they've come to a startup, they're super excited because for the first time in their career, they're working on something where they feel like their work really matters and they can make a difference through their career. But then the way they get treated is way worse than what it was when they were in a corporate job. And so it's it's a very confronting experience. I've spoken to probably dozens of women in the last couple of months who have come to what they thought was going to be their dream job in a startup, experienced horrific behavior, undermining their skills, their talent, their contribution, their sense of self, and they've ended up leaving the tech ecosystem more broadly, which for for those of us who are investing in companies, for those of us leading companies is not what we want to see. That's not the basis of a long-term sustainable thriving tech ecosystem. Mm. Do you think just as as a society that we are in denial about how much misogyny still exists just in general life? I do think we are in denial about how much misogyny exists, yes. And there's a number of different examples of that. I mean, the rates of domestic violence and death 
through intimate partner violence in Australia is spine chilling. And the fact that that is not a national conversation indicates that that there is this deep-seated underlying lack of respect for women and lack of willingness to prioritise women's safety. And I think that is quite an extreme example, but that same mindset does filter down to our companies, to our organisations when it comes to protecting women's psychological safety. They're right to bring their whole selves to work without their behaviour being perceived as an invitation to, to someone to ask them out on a date or try and come onto them or whatever it might be. We do have a problem with misogyny in Australia and we do have a problem with misogyny within the tech ecosystem as well. It is very confronting sometimes. The the casualness with which comments and things will be made to you. And I mean that that extends to racism to all kinds of things where people think they assume we look alike, so we must think the same and make a comment that can leave you speechless, but the importance of not being speechless and they're incredibly valuable. So I, I, even though I'm not the demographic of the grapevine, I, I really value reading that because it empowers me to make sure I'm doing the best at being an ally. Coming from education and from child protection, I've worked alongside people who have turned out to be you know, behave have behaved inappropriately. And mm-hmm. you learn early on that you've got to call it out, but it's not your job to investigate it. It's not your job to come to a, a conclusion. It's your job to say, hey, that doesn't look on. We've got to do something about this to make sure it doesn't escalate. And mm. I think that we need to somehow work out how we can be the same in this space. But we seem to just have such trouble believing people. You know, the the Canva piece that came out a couple of weeks ago which is allegations that haven't you know been we don't know the insides of that but the number of outright dismissals of the female making the allegation in that point that I read with no knowledge of it just blew me away that we just oh she's just a money grabber she's just jealous she probably got rejected or you know something like I, I don't know how we we change that mm. that thinking yeah, and those kind of comments appear anytime, you know, a woman, but not necessarily a woman. Like I it's important to to recognize that women are not only victims, women can be perpetrators as well. Men can be victims of this bullying behavior. It's more, I think, a, a question of power rather than specifically demographics, but then those kind of structural factors contribute to women people of colour, tending to be in lower, less influential positions, whereas more kind of homogenous archetype of founder or leader in startups tends to be in the dominant position. So at no point am I saying all men or anything like that. Always have to say that because, you know, there's there's people out there who like to read into the comments. But that's exactly what we're aiming to do with Grapevine is share these very real stories that happen to people, you know, people who you know or people who are just like you and to share a way to, to respond to the people who are in that circumstance. We are very conscious within Grapevine of the power structures and the advice that we provide around how better a situation could have been handled is very deliberately structured so that it starts with the most powerful to the least powerful person in the position. So one of the stories had a board member observing a particular interaction between a founder and a female staff member. And so the advice to the board member came first in that because that is the person in that scenario with the greatest power and the greatest ability to actually step in and correct this behavior at the time. What's been really interesting is the reaction from 
you know, men in the ecosystem, people who haven't necessarily experienced this behavior firsthand, there's a lot of people who see these stories and and relate to them, share them, you know, share their own story, say, yes, you know, I've seen this happen so many times. But there's an equal number of people who who respond and just say, I had no idea that this was happening. I mean, I had a comment recently from a man who I really respect who said, when I was reading this, my reaction was, this must be a joke. And then I saw your comment that that this is something that you've seen a lot and it really just kind of stopped me in my tracks because this is so much not my experience of coming to these workplaces. And so I think that is so valuable because that the the kind of mechanism that we're using with Grapevine, the story sharing, the really kind of positive view of what's possible and encouraging bystanders and others in the ecosystem to to speak up and do better is changing people's perception of what's appropriate. And it is, I think, emboldening people to speak up about their own experiences. And again, I think this is something where I started my career in a big law firm where there were probably a thousand people working in the Sydney office. And in that environment, you know, there's the kind of whispered conversations between the grads about, you know, such and such a partner's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit sleazy when he's drinking. So, you know, like at the firm events, maybe be conscious of him and don't go, you know, don't go near him at the end of the night kind of thing. Like you have that sort of protective mechanism of the stories that get shared, but in small startups, there's no one to warn you. I mean, oftentimes there's no one to even realize that this is happening or that this behavior is wrong. And so by sharing those stories through the grapevine, we are empowering not just victims to recognize that this behavior is inappropriate. We're empowering perpetrators to recognize that, hang on, this is something that I, sh- I can do, but I shouldn't do. And we're empowering other people around these these parties to be able to speak up and correct that behavior before it becomes a problem. Mm. I think that kind of comes full circle to the ageism question in startups, because one thing I think that often happens, and you see ads for roles in startups where it's like, come join our young dynamic team. And that that kind of lack of life experience, the you know, people that know this isn't okay, that bring that balance to things are so important. I I worked in a a startup that was in heavy scale up mode in an office with like baby humans, you know, that you know, gor- gorgeous like grads, but baby humans. And there was one other real adult there. And there was a day where <laughs> people from the head office came down and for some meeting, and and we're all sitting at our desks, and this like screaming match erupts, you know, between these leaders, and we're like, let's turn the music up, you know, and keep keep typing. And then finally, it was like about four o'clock, and I just looked at the other adult, and I was like, I think that we should leave. Like, I think these, I don't think these guys need to sit here and listen to that. Like, I'm not going to go in and tell them to do better adulting they're they're the leaders but i think i think we should just go and the mm-hmm. and the kids were like oh thank you you know like you know it's that thing of someone to normalize things to say you know what this isn't okay because it's the same as with our children if we don't when kids are little if we miss like if we lose our temper if we something that we shouldn't have and we don't acknowledge that to kids that hey i'm so sorry i raised my voice i shouldn't have done that or this wasn't okay they don't know. They just assume, oh, I guess that's okay. And I think that's the same in the workplace as well. So that brings the that that kind of full circle. Look, we could talk forever. That's why we've had to have you back once already. 
And I'm sure mm-hmm. that we will again. If people want to find out more about Grapevine, where's the right place to look? If people want to find out more about Grapevine, we are on LinkedIn, on Ask the Grapevine. We're on Instagram on the same tag and we're at askthegrapevine.com. So we, we put up posts on LinkedIn probably weekly or twice weekly at the moment. So that's the best way for most professionals to engage with us. Fantastic. Kristen, thank you so much for your time. You can find Kristen Hunter on LinkedIn and find out more about Techstars at techstars.com. And that's it for the Bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we would love a positive rating and review to help others find our program. Even better, share the show with a friend, tell your neighbors, shave the words the bootstrap into your hair. We won't say no and it'll grow back anyway. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap startups from scratch. We're on Instagram and we're working on the rest of our social media presence, including our YouTube channel. You can also find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap posts there. We'd love to hear from you. The bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perryman. Original sound designed by Rob Clark. Executive producers are Tiffany Ashdown and me for Highland Road. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.